Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. As the old saying goes, revenge is a dish best served cold. Although the expression's origins are a little vague, a French diplomat named Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord, who lived during the late 18th and early 19th centuries, is sometimes credited with coining the phrase. Although there is little supporting detail as to the context or what he actually meant by it. Variations on the expression turn up again and again in various works of 18th and 19th century French literature. Only by then the meaning was clear. Revenge was something to be sought slowly and deliberately, and then savored. Over time the phrase has lived on and become part of our cultural framework. Just as the very acts of vengeance it refers to have played out time and again throughout history. Sociologists and psychologists alike claim that revenge serves no real purpose and is ultimately a self destructive act. MRI scans of test subjects' brains have shown that thinking about acts of revenge actually activates the temporal reward center, providing the person a shot of the feel good neurotransmitter dopamine. And it's not just limited to humans either. Revenge appears to be a common trait we share with animals as well. Scientists have observed acts which can only be described as vengeful in many primates, and on one notable occasion it's been observed in another species entirely. In 1997, a Russian poacher came across a Siberian tiger in the forest that had just taken down a deer. The poacher shot and wounded the tiger, then took part of the tiger's kill. The tiger responded by doing something that had never been observed in a big cat before. It got revenge. The tiger tracked the poacher's scent for miles all the way back to his cabin where it remained, lying in wait for the man to return home. When he finally got there a full day later, the tiger pounced on him, dragged him into the bush, and ate him. One of the most famous tales to come out of Japanese history also describes a case of a group of people who, like the Siberian tiger, lay in wait for their moment to strike. The tale of the 47 Ronin is also known as the Aku incident in Japan, and is actually celebrated each year on December 14th each year at Senkaguji Temple. In 1701, two daimyo, or local feudal lords, Asano of the Yako Domain in western Honshu, and Lord Kame of Suwano Domain, were ordered to arrange a reception for representatives of the Japanese emperor at Edo Castle. Now stories vary as to what actually transpired after that. Some stories say the two daimyo were woefully unprepared for their initial meeting with a powerful court official named Kira and that they insulted the man by not presenting him with a sufficient number of gifts. Other stories say Kira was exceptionally rude to the two men from the start, and things went downhill from there. In any case, things got ugly fast between everyone involved. Lord Kame managed to avoid disaster by making Kira happy by paying him a huge bribe. Asano, on the other hand, 
refused to back down or pay the man what he felt he deserved. Kira didn't like this one bit, and he continued to insult Asano until finally Asano had enough and lashed out at Kira with a knife, slashing him across the face. Kira's wound was relatively minor, but any sort of attack in Edo Castle, much less one against a royal official, was considered a capital offense. Asano was ordered to commit the act of seppuku, ritual suicide by disemboweling oneself. Asano complied, and after he was dead, Kira seized all of his lands and wealth for himself, then disbanded Asano's army of samurai warriors, but not all of them went away so quietly. Forty-seven of Asano's three hundred samurai gathered in secret and made a pact to avenge their master's death. Without a master, these forty-seven samurai became known as ronin, which roughly translates to masterless samurai. The 47 ronin disbanded and assimilated into the community. They married, got drunk, frequented brothels, and did everything they could to make themselves appear to be completely harmless. Then, nearly two years later, after Kira had long since let his guard down and determined these men were no threat to him, the ronin got back together and attacked Kira's mansion in Edo. They laid siege to the mansion, slaughtering 16 of Kira's men and wounding 22 more, including Kira's grandson. They found Kira hiding in a closet, and they dragged him out into the courtyard. There, they offered him the same dagger that their master had used to kill himself, ordering him to perform the same act upon himself. Kira refused, and the ronin pinned him down and decapitated him with the knife. Afterwards, their mission done and their master avenge, 46 of the ronin committed their own acts of seppuku. The 47th lived on to tell the tale, and was later pardoned by the shogun. He went on to live a quiet life until dying of old age at 87. After his death, he was buried alongside the bodies of his comrades, and the legends of the 47 ronin has lived on and been celebrated ever since in Japanese history. Now, I'm not here to argue whether any particular act of revenge was moral or just. Many Japanese see the story of the 47 ronin as the ultimate expression of the samurai Bushido code of honor whereas others see it as the very epitome of revenge being a dish best served cold. But history is filled with many similar remarkable tales of people who took their thirst for vengeance to a whole new level, and sometimes those same people were rewarded greatly for the effort. I'm Nate Hale, and you killed my father, and this is The Conspirators. One of the most horrific and astounding stories of vengeance in history centers around a Russian princess who went on to wreak a level of violence on those who wronged her that would make Cersei Lannister proud. The exact year Princess Olga of Kiev was born is in some dispute. Some records claim she was born in the year 879, whereas others say it was closer to 890. Seeing as she gave birth to her only son in 942, the later date is probably more likely. She was born in the Sikov region in northwestern Russia to a family of Variag origin. The Variags are more well known by another name that might give some clue to the nature of Olga's spectacularly violent nature that she displayed later in life. The Variags, you see, were Vikings. What is known about Olga is that sometime before 912 she married Prince Igor, 
son of the founder of the Rurik dynasty of Russian Tsars. In 912, the pair took the throne of Kievan Rus, a principality that stretched from the Baltic Sea in the north to the Black Sea in the south. Three years after the birth of his son, Igor went to meet a Slavic tribe called the Drevlians. The Drevlians had a long and stormy relationship with the Kievan Rus. Whereas technically the Drevlians lived in part of Igor and Olga's kingdom, and they had even joined the Rus in military campaigns against the Byzantine Empire to the west, they weren't always on very good terms with the Rus. Local clans back then were expected to pay tribute to the king in the form of gold, furs, and other valuables. Although they paid tribute to Igor's father, they cut off payments after he died, and instead began paying their protection money to a local warlord. Igor didn't like this one bit, so he personally went on an envoy mission to Drevlian territory, demanding they pay up. Instead, they just killed him. So the historical record goes, they bent down two large birch trees and tied each tree to one of Igor's feet. Then they let the trees go, and as they snapped back into place, they tore Igor in half. Olga didn't take the news of her husband's death very well. With Igor's death, that meant that their son Sviatoslav was heir to the throne. But since he was only three years old at the time, Olga became the regent of the kingdom. Being in charge of the kingdom also meant Olga was now in charge of the enormous Rus army, and she had every intention of using it to get her revenge. Since the Drevlians weren't crazy about the idea of having a female leader, they decided to send a group of 200 ambassadors to negotiate a marriage between Olga and Prince Mal, their own top contender for the throne. Olga answered the Drevlians in no uncertain terms. She ordered her men to dig a large ditch alongside the castle. The next morning she had her ambassadors approach the Drevlian ambassadors and told them that Olga summons you with great honor. Now the Drevlians really seemed to believe that they had the upper hand in those negotiations. After all, Olga was just a weak little woman in desperate need of a man's guidance. Once they married her off to their prince, then they would be in charge of the entire kingdom. The ambassadors were so convinced of their superiority in this matter that they refused to lower themselves to riding by horseback or wagon to the castle. They insisted that Olga's men pick them up in their boat and carry them on their shoulders back to the castle. So Olga's men did it. They carried the ambassadors and their boat overland all the way from the shore and up into the castle court. Olga was there waiting for them. She smiled and bade her men to bring them closer. That's when Olga ordered her men to drop them into the trench, boat and all. Olga leaned over the edge of the trench at the dazed and confused group of Drevlians and asked them if her reception was to their liking and if they felt sufficiently honored. Then Olga turned back to her subjects and told them to fill in the hole and bury the men alive. It seems difficult to believe, but the Drevlians really didn't learn their lesson at this point. Olga sent word back to the Drevlians that if they wanted her hand in marriage, then they'd better send a better group of suitors, which they did. When they arrived in the castle, Olga invited them to wash up in her bathhouse. Once they were all inside the bathhouse, Olga locked the doors and set the building on fire. But Olga wasn't anywhere close to being done at this point. The Drevlians were finally beginning to get the idea that maybe Olga wasn't quite the frail little flower they had originally taken her for. The groups of envoys she had already killed comprised a large portion of the Drevlian ruling class. Olga sent word to the Drevlians that she wanted to smooth things over between them. 
She said she would be arriving soon in their capital city and asked them to arrange a funeral feast to honor and mourn her dead husband. The Drevlians eagerly agreed, knowing now that this wasn't a woman to be trifled with. That night, as the feast raged on and the Drevlians drank themselves into a stupor, Olga took the occasion to order her soldiers to slaughter 5,000 of their men. But even this wasn't enough to satiate Olga's thirst for vengeance. It was what Olga did next that really managed to cement her place in the Revenge Hall of Fame. The remaining Drevlian rulers begged for mercy and even offered to pay Olga all the tributes her husband had demanded when they killed him. At this point, Olga seemed to soften a bit. Give me three pigeons, she said, and three sparrows from each house. I do not desire to impose a heavy tribute like my husband, but I require only the small gift for you are impoverished by the siege. It was an odd request, but the Drevlings happily complied. At this point, they would have given Olga pretty much anything she wanted. What they still didn't understand was that all Olga wanted was revenge. She gave each soldier in her army a pigeon or a sparrow, then she ordered each of them to attach a piece of sulfur bound with a small piece of cloth to the bird's leg. When night fell, Olga ordered her men to release the birds, and then the birds did what comes naturally to them. They flew home. They returned to their nests which they built under the eaves of the house, and up on rooftops, under porches, and everywhere else throughout the Drevlian city. Then Olga ordered her men to set the city on fire. The entire town went up in a massive wildfire that could be seen for miles around. There wasn't a single house in the entire city that wasn't instantly engulfed in flames. The people that survived the inferno fled the city in a massive wave. Olga's soldiers were waiting for them. They captured everyone as they fled. Many of them Olga had put to death, while others she gave to her loyal followers as slaves. Thus, Olga's revenge was finally complete. The Drevlians were basically wiped from existence. In some ways, you could admire Olga's commitment to seeking justice against those who wronged her. At the same time, you have to admit, Olga was a little bit of a psychopath. In 957, Olga visited Emperor Constantine VII in Constantinople, the capital of the vast Byzantine Empire. Constantine was immediately taken with Olga's beauty and intelligence, and he began to think she would be a fine choice for a wife. Olga agreed to be baptized into Christianity. Before her baptism, Constantine proposed marriage to her, but Olga outsmarted him. She said she would only marry him after she had been baptized an Orthodox Christian. After Constantine asked for her hand in marriage again, Olga pointed out that since Constantine had acted as her godfather in the ceremony, their marriage would be considered incestuous and therefore be forbidden by the church. Constantine wasn't pleased with her trickery, but he respected her for outwitting him, and he lavished gifts upon her as she returned home. Back in Russia, Olga watched her son Sviatoslav grow into a man and eventually ascend the throne. Even after Sviatoslav was technically in charge, he did so at a distance, choosing to spend much of his time traveling, conquering, and securing tribute. Olga remained in the capital and continued to rule in his place. She set up the first standardized system of taxation in Eastern Europe, minted coins, built the first stone structures in Kiev, and continued to spread the gospel of the Catholic Church throughout her kingdom. 
She tried to convince her son to be baptized as well, but he refused. Although he allowed her to carry on her new calling as she introduced Christianity to Russia. Although Olga had earned the respect of Constantine and managed to create a relatively stable relationship with her neighbors in the Byzantine Empire, Sviatoslav brought all that to an abrupt end by provoking all-out war with them after attempting to expand into their territory. In 968, Kiev was under siege by a warrior clan known as the Pechenegs. Since Sviatoslav was off fighting battles with much of the Rus' army, it wouldn't be long before the Pechenegs conquered the city. But once again, at age 80, Olga managed to outwit her enemies. She sent a messenger to order a small detachment of Rus' troops to return to the city waving flags. When they did, Olga came out to greet them with her arms outstretched, in full view of the Pechenegs. The Pechenegs thought this meant that Sviatoslav had returned with the entire Rus' army, so they fled in fear. After, Olga sent an angry letter to her son demanding that he return and avenge the attack. Being a dutiful son, Sviatoslav returned and wiped out the Pechenegs. Olga died a month later in 969. As a result of her efforts to spread Christianity throughout the land, in 1547, Olga was declared an Orthodox saint and equal to the Apostles, making her only one of five women in history to receive the honor. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. If you enjoy the show, please help us grow by downloading us on iTunes and leaving us a review. We're also always available on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. We're also available on Stitcher and the Google Play Store. Thanks so much for listening.